are listening to Venture Vignettes, a podcast that features trailblazers in entrepreneurship, investment, and innovation. I'm your host, Rihanna Shah, recording from Stanford, California. If you like what you hear today, don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes and like us on Facebook. Today, we're talking with Tracy Chadwell and Allison Andrews Reyes, partners at 1843 Capital. Tracy has over 19 years' experience in venture capital and private equity. Tracy was partner of a growth capital fund, Baker Capital, with more than a billion dollars under management. She serves on the boards of Marstone and Sachs Insights as well. She's also an advisor to the MIT Enterprise Forum, executive advisor for the Echoing Green Foundation, and New York Institute of Technology. She acts as a mentor for both tech stars and Monarch. She's an attorney and earned her JD at Loyola University of Chicago. Her partner, Allison Andrews Reyes, is a startup founder and executive with 20-plus years of experience in enterprise software, including business intelligence, web development, and cybersecurity. Most recently, she was COO and founder at Designable.com, a B2B technology-enabled service for commercial and residential design. Previously, she served as president and CEO of Vigilant, Inc., growing it from a self-funded startup to a 65-person company acquired by Deloitte. She's also served in senior executive roles at eGrail Inc. and MicroStrategy Inc. Allison holds an AB from Dartmouth College in Engineering Sciences. Thanks so much for being on the show, Tracy and Allison. Thank you. Thank you. To start out, would love to hear a little bit about the investment thesis of 1843 Capital and what you guys have been thinking about as you sort of start to source your initial companies. Well, let me tell you, first of all, what 1843 stands for, because I think that that will lead into what our thesis is. Yeah. 1843 is the year that Ada Lovelace wrote the first computer program. And we like to look back and, and realize that there's others that came before us hmm. and give a nod to women that have been in technology for hundreds of years. That's beautiful. Yeah, so that is a great segue into what we see as a fantastic opportunity for potentially superior returns for this fund. Um, As we mentioned, it's a first-time fund, um, but our focus is to try to take advantage of what we see as a massive market inefficiency, and that's a combination of a number of different factors. First and foremost, obviously, we're technology investors. We still think Mm -hmm. it's one of the most fantastic places to find great returns um, as an investor. But secondarily, we can get into the specifics of the the technology sectors as well, but Mm -hmm. secondarily, there is a flood of money that's gone into um, seed stage funding, and there are very large-scale growth equity funds that sit out there. And in the middle of all that, there's this bit of a pinch that has occurred in the Series A, what we call gap. And so um, we see that as a huge opportunity, which is why we're focused as a Series A investor. Um, we think that we're de-risking the investments by doing so because we're starting a little bit later and hopefully these companies will actually not have just revenue but also many of the kinks worked out by the time uh, we, uh, we place an investment. And of course, the other big piece of this is we're looking for diverse teams and preferably ones with at least one female founder. Um, and why is that important to us? Um, again, market inefficiency. Women are getting, mm-hmm. most recent statistic, 2% of all venture funding. Yeah, it's um, pretty terrible. It's a, it's a terrible statistic, but also it's not nearly reflective of the fact that there are thousands and thousands of incredibly qualified female founders out there who just, their deals are not surfacing. They're not inside of the network. Uh, inside of the ecosystem to get their deals in front of the venture capitalists, and so they're not getting the funding. And so we're looking to change all of that while being able to generate what we think will be outsized returns. 
there's a real circle of capital that's been happening. And this started on the West Coast in, in San Francisco, where mm-hmm. an entrepreneur in the 70s and 80s would become very successful, exit their company, turn around, pass it to new founders coming up. These were often people that they worked with, yeah. very close by, very often looked exactly like them. So traditionally, women have not been in that circle of capital loop. So yeah. they haven't had those networks and haven't been able to access it to, to grow new companies. But now what we're mm-hmm. seeing is a lot of really fantastic women entrepreneurs coming up and exiting their companies and they're turning around and doing the same. That's very interesting. I think that's such a that's such a great point, especially as we think about ways to sort of diversify the ecosystem and also just give more opportunities to folks who are awesome and who are doing really cool work. Yes. One interesting thing that I've heard has been that a lot of women who, if they get funded, are often in companies that are sort of the it's the softer companies, more of the like women-focused companies in fitness and in beauty. But uh, you've done a lot of work um, in in cybersecurity and in much more hardcore tech. Analytics and such, yeah. Yeah, could you talk a little bit about whether or not there are those women entrepreneurs who are doing those things and why it might be that they may not be getting the funding? Yeah, so there are, again, you know, there are plenty of these women out there. Um, I've worked alongside a lot of them. And, uh, you know, I think, again, it's not just about the fact that does the female founder exist, but rather mm-hmm. does the entire breadth of the ecosystem function to support them and yeah. define them and surface the deals? And so it's not a question of whether or not women are participating in these. And again, statistically speaking, you're not going to see a huge percentage of women mm-hmm. in a place like cybersecurity. Right? It's a growing segment as women yeah. you know, are actually increasing their numbers in STEM and we'll continue to see that, that growth. Um, however, they're absolutely there and it's all about making sure that you have the other pieces of the ecosystem in place to make sure that they actually get their deals in front of venture capitalists, which is why we're here. What would you say are some of the other pieces of the ecosystem that we need to put in place in order to be able to increase more female founders? We have incubators and accelerators, Mm -hmm. uh, but one of the most interesting aspects of the firm that we've built is we have a strategic partnership with something called the Veneta Project, which Mm -hmm. was built by our West Coast partner, Vanessa Dawson. And the Veneta Project is an events-based platform that supports women entrepreneurs and helps to get them funding because Mm -hmm. Vanessa saw that it was very difficult to women for women to get funded and didn't mm-hmm. want to put them through a whole accelerator mm-hmm. just to teach them how to raise capital. Yeah. So that's in seven cities in North America and uh, wow. seeing over 2,000 women entrepreneurs every year, uh, you know, of all diverse backgrounds. That's fascinating. Usually on a business model canvas, you'll see this box, right, that says unfair advantage. So I'm wondering, what would you say is you guys' unfair advantage at 1843? Oh, our competitive advantage is the access to this deal flow. And, and the ability to recognize the deal flow, too, because very often we hear this, oh, all the great deals are going to get funded eventually. Everything is going to bubble up. But, you know, quite frankly, that isn't true. Mm-hmm. And as women investors, we come with a different set of experiences mm-hmm. and a different mindset. For example, I have a, a company called Beauty Counter, which is a non-toxic body care company that I invested in. And because I had been to peer-to-peer sales models parties, because Mm -hmm. I had shopped for body lotion in Whole Foods, I knew exactly what the products were, I knew exactly what to look for, and I knew exactly how things were, were being sold effectively and efficiently. So I was able to jump on that investment very early. 
Hmm. Uh, could you tell me more about which specific industries you're investing in and if you guys have a specific focus or you're just sort of doing it more across the board? Sure. So, I mean, with regard to the sectors in technology, part of it really stems from the backgrounds that we all bring into mm-hmm. 1843. Um, and so, as you know, you know, I'm, I'm literally just crossing over from being a, an entrepreneur and operator over to the venture side. Yeah. Um, but the breadth of my career, the most significant pieces of that were in business mm-hmm. intelligence and analytics. Um, and then secondarily, 10 years in cybersecurity. And so mm-hmm. those are going to be big sectors for me to focus mm-hmm. on. Uh, and so I'm excited to try to do at scale, essentially, with 1843, mm-hmm. what I've been doing on an individual company-by-company company basis. Yep. Uh, likewise, you know, each of us comes with individual you know, skill sets and experience in terms of investing as well. And so I don't know if you want to speak to some of the other pieces. Tracy's been invested in fintech. She's been invested in silver tech. Mm-hmm. Um, Fintech is an area where I think we're going to see a ton of additional growth. Um, Particularly, we're excited about the B2B side of fintech versus what has been a really heavy push initially in B2C. Hmm. Um, I think, generally speaking, as a firm, we like technology in the B2B space. Mm -hmm. Um, We will do some consumer investments, but in particular, uh, my background is Mm -hmm. heavily weighted to the enterprise software sector. And so, you know, we see the multiples, we see the deal sizes. Um, and we like the recurring revenue stream that you tend to see in, in B2B deals. Um, but do you want to talk further about SilverTech? So SilverTech uh, is a, a term I coined to refer to technology that solves pain points for people over 50. We view this as an incredible market opportunity, given that AARP has said that 80% of the capital in this country is being held by people over 50. You know, the baby boomer segment is the largest consumer segment we have. And so this is software that's used either by that market segment of the baby boomers, or it could be their adult children that are trying to solve issues for them and, and using software to do that. What would you say are some of the main pieces that folks are trying to solve with this particular population? They're coming at almost everything now with technology, which is really exciting, and and we love to see it. Uh, But particularly so, there's a lot of uh, healthcare and financial issues that they're trying to solve, both on the the caregiver, but then in terms of healthcare support, and then on the financial side, managing bill pay, or uh, a company I'm invested in called Silvernest, which does roommate matching for people over 50 to help solve the problem of financial insecurity, but also to satisfy the need to want to age in place, which is what a lot of people want to do without giving up their largest asset, which is their home. This allows them to monetize it and reduce the loneliness factor. Hmm. That's very interesting. What does it mean to age in place and what does it mean to have a roommate in that case? Are they taking care of the the elderly person or how does it work? So aging in place is when someone has uh, their home as their largest asset and they, for either a financial reason, maybe would have to sell that because their income stream is is not growing at the same pace of inflation, or they might have some health care issues. By having another person in the home, and that person is renting the space, they could satisfy that additional income need, but also having them there to sort of keep an eye on the person too, even though it's not a a true fiduciary responsibility towards that person, it might be just an informal and nice to know that somebody else is there and, and notices that the person hasn't been alone in the home for two days. That's beautiful. That sounds like something that would definitely solve a lot of problems and feel like even my own grandparents would appreciate something like that. Right. 
What are the design challenges in designing for this particular population, right? You mentioned software for silver tech. Right. I imagine it's hard to get your grandmother on a computer, right? But what are some ways in which you're seeing entrepreneurs sort of hack that particular problem and come up with solutions anyway? Well, the first thing is, is surprisingly enough, we're accelerating in terms of adoption of both the desktop and the mobile devices. So we're seeing about 60% adoption on the on the desktop devices and, and just above 30% uh, in terms of mobile devices. So this is this is up and coming. However, it's very interesting that you hit on the design challenges. And when we look at companies, a lot of times we, we look at the technology, but also equally as important, we look at the marketing and the design. And a lot of the UX and UI has to be tested over and over again because there are certain things that just this demographic doesn't understand, like, say, swipe left and swipe right. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine. And how have some of these entrepreneurs solved these issues? By doing the testing on the demographic, by, by getting the you know their minimum viable product into the hands of this demographic and seeing what they do with it and, and uh, seeing do they, do they pull that bar down from the top? Do they see the, the banner that's at the bottom? And, and it's very interesting what comes up. Yeah, I guess that sounds like very sound advice to actually test what you're trying to build with the users that you're trying to build with. Right. Interesting. Who are the entrepreneurs who are most commonly working in the similar tech space? Because I imagine there's a pretty large age gap between sort of the idea that we have of the young entrepreneur in in the hoodie who's like in college in their dorm rooms coding versus adults who are who are elderly and who are sort of the ones facing these issues. You know, it's a really interesting thing, and that's a great question that you asked because um, you know our traditional image, you're right, is of someone that's male and that's 28 that's building a company, and I think to a large extent, because that is the bulk of, of the the view of the entrepreneur, they don't understand this necessarily these pain points. So in this sector, we have seen not only diversity of gender, not only diversity of color, but we're seeing diversity of age as well. We're seeing, you know, first or second time founders in their 50s and 60s, which is really exciting. That's interesting. Do you have some examples of some founders who are working on this right now? Yes, we met with a group of three women who are really exciting, who who are all in their 40s and 50s and 60s that are working on a a way to solve the problem of uh, being able to affordably access the assisted living space. And what are they doing in that area? So they're creating what is essentially a trip advisor for the assisted living. So people could compare and review the places and, and get a better idea of where they would like to be. That's really cool. That sounds awesome. I feel like I would uh, use that eventually. I have many years to go, but I feel like that would be something well, that would be interesting. that the person themselves could use if they were going into assisted living. It's also something that maybe one of their children might use. Yeah. I think with this area, one of the things that's interesting in silver tech is that a lot of times it's the adult children who are the customers, although the elders are the users of these mm-hmm. products. Could you talk a little bit about that almost a divided marketing model or a divided sales model when it comes to this industry? So there is a, there is a company that is trying to build a, a Facebook internally inside assisted living facilities, and hmm. some of the challenges is, are just simply getting people to be interested in holding a tablet in their hands, and, and many people are not. Um, actually, the, something that's, that's really funny is that the virtual reality, you know, the VR headsets are something that are absolutely not being adopted by this demographic at all, although, although you'll see stories of seniors using the devices and, and mm-hmm. feeling more connected to the outside world. They've done studies, and these seniors don't want to feel silly wearing the VR headset, so they won't put it on. I don't blame him. <laughs> Everyone looks silly for those things. I think right? everything looks yeah. silly. You're right. Exactly. Yeah. Unless you're wearing it, in which case it's really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. 
so all three of the partners in 1843 Capital are women. I'm wondering, have you faced any resistance through your fundraising process or your investment process or sourcing process? And uh, what has that been like? I'll actually counter that by saying I think that there's, again, going back to your question about competitive advantage, um, we see the fact that we are a female founding team here at 1843 as a competitive advantage for ourselves. And part of that is because, again, with female founders out there, there are many who would actually prefer to have investors who are also women. Um, And so we had a meeting a few weeks ago with a woman who is a successful second-time founder. She sold her first company for over $60 million, uh, was meeting with a gentleman in private equity who said, oh yeah, I definitely can get some funding for you. I have this guy. I think he'd be great. All you need to do is just commit to dating him. What? So, and this was literally smack in the middle of the Me Too movement just a few weeks ago. So that's the kind of stuff that still is out there, still prevalent, still happening today. And so she just said, I sought you guys out. I Mm -hmm. found you because I want to make sure that my investors in this next company are women. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Oh my gosh. And we see that um, a lot of investors still believe that women are building things that are small. Mm -hmm. Women are building things that are only targeted towards women. And that things ultimately, if they're any good, somebody is going to see them anyway. And and that's simply not true. Uh, I have an investment in a company that is now uh, close to $200 in sales. and, And nobody would touch it as an institutional investor until it reached about $20 in sales. So I think that there are a lot of undiscovered gems out there, and and we have the perspective to take advantage of that. That's really incredible. Why do you think women have trouble getting funded by VCs? I mean, we've heard a little bit about the fact that it's hard to sort of break into those networks and chat with folks who might be in in that general area, but are there other issues that you've seen women face around raising money? Right. I, I think like everything, th- this is two-sided, right? And, and and both sides have things to learn. I think sometimes from the male VC perspective, um, they're not able to see the true opportunity because they may not have an experience in the area. Or, or maybe they're not used to listening to the words that the entrepreneur, whether she's a, a woman entrepreneur or a diverse entrepreneur, using. And then on the other side of the equation, on the, on the entrepreneur side, sometimes... Women entrepreneurs get very carried away in telling the story when I would encourage them to start with their KPIs, Mm -hmm. start with their metrics, Mm -hmm. show how their revenue growth is higher than their competitors, Mm -hmm. show the exit opportunities that they have, and learn to really speak the language that the venture capitalists learn. Also, too, I found that... uh, People who haven't started a company before sometimes can be a little shy. You need to be really proud of what you're doing, and you need to get very comfortable asking for exactly what you want. I have in the past had some women entrepreneurs say to me, Tracy, I'm so sorry. I don't want to bother you. And I say, you know what? You're not bothering me. This is my job. In fact, you need to bother more people. And I say (laughs) that one of the key components of this is you know, once you really understand what, what you're bringing to the table and you find someone and you know that it's something that they're interested in, then mm-hmm. you have to turn around and be very, very persistent and understand yeah. that no doesn't mean no. No means no at that exact time for exactly what you're asking for. Yeah, definitely. And to continue to go back, especially if someone says to you, look, your revenues aren't where we expect them to be. We really like them at $2 million. You're at $1 mm-hmm. million now, you know, but keep us posted. Keep them posted. And keep calling. And hey, even if you get to 1.5 million in revenues, say, hey, look, I made this benchmark. Can we come in? Can I give, give you an update? 
because it, there's no harm in it. What you know? Listen, if you don't call them, if you don't go after them, you've already said no for them. Yeah, definitely. There's another very specific concrete piece which I'll mention as well. We were talking about this the other day, Tracy and I. One of the things that happened to me early in my career is I actually um, was asked to start teaching classes uh, in business intelligence, and so hmm. I had to teach classes around how one would design a database for breaking third normal form and build OLAP-style databases when this was all sort of very new, right? Yeah. And I had to do that to an audience of people who were probably 15 or 20 years my senior. Um, and I was scared out of my wits, right, to go and do this. But I ended up teaching those classes with regularity, three days a week, entertaining clients, doing all of that kind of stuff. And what happened was I ended up becoming very adept at public speaking, um, and I think that that kind of skill set is incredibly important because you really need to be able to give a tight, metrics-driven presentation representing your company in the best way possible. And it's got to be concise because you've got a few minutes to make that impression. Um, and I can't say you know, enough about making sure that one can develop those skills because it's going to be critically important for any founder. Yeah, definitely. And what would you guys say are the most important metrics around founders and around a new company? Really growth metrics. What's what's happening within your company so you can show the growth. But but one thing also too that's very important that I always tell founders, uh, you know, any founder, is that lead with your story, lead with your background, because that sets the stage with the credibility to how you're going to attack the opportunity that you have before you. But if, if you start off talking about the pitch about the company, mm-hmm. they don't know the context. They don't know if you really have the network and the capability to do what you're talking about doing. They'll listen with different ears when they know your background first. Yeah, definitely. And I think that combined with sort of the total addressable market are two of the like very important components, right? If there's enough people to sell to who are going to buy your product. Absolutely. And if you yourself have the capability to execute. I'm also wondering, as a closing question, what sort of advice would you give to yourselves if you were sort of just starting out on your journey go to business school (laughs) (laughs) i had a dad who was a lawyer and a mom who thought it would be a great thing to fall back on that i would always have a law degree to fall back on after i had kids and i i spent really about three minutes practicing law and really figured out pretty early on that uh that being in finance and, and helping to build companies is what excited me the most. For me, I would say it's take the big risks. Hmm. Um, I was fortunate that that was part of my personality, I think. Mm-hmm. And so when I came out of undergrad, I had a choice of going the very traditional kind of management consultancy path or going with this crazy tech startup, uh, which was pretty new at the time. Yeah. Um, and I knew if a fraction of what the somewhat megalomaniacal CEO was saying at the time were to come true that this company would be wildly successful. Mm -hmm. And that was the path that I picked was that latter one. And I'm incredibly thankful because it gave me the itch and I stayed in tech startups for, you know, the bulk of my career, 23 years now. Um, And so that wouldn't have happened if I was risk averse, right? If I looked at it and said, let me make the safe choice, Mm -hmm. you know, let me go and do this and, you know, make sure that I've got some kind of base to build from, no, I had to break paradigms, and I had to go do the riskiest thing that I could. And I'm thankful that I didn't look back. Yeah, that's amazing. I think those are really, really wonderful insights. Thank you both so much for being on the show. Well, Thank thanks. You. This was fun. 
to all of our listeners. Thanks again for listening to Venture Vignettes, a podcast dedicated to interviews with tech leaders at the forefront of innovation. For questions, comments, or requests, you can always reach me at brianna at kzsu.stanford.edu. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and definitely leave us a review on iTunes. I'm Rihanna Shah, signing off until next time.